Elon Musk, the eccentric billionaire founder of SpaceX and Tesla, is always in the news for one reason or another. Recently, he made headlines on account of the house that he lives in while he's working at the SpaceX facility. Actually, Musk is in the process of creating a whole new town in the rural Texas area. They're calling it Starbase, Texas. Musk tweeted recently, please consider moving to Starbase. Encourage friends to do so. His house on the SpaceX campus is a 20 foot by 20 foot foldable dwelling, 375 square feet when all is said and done. That's okay, because he's not planning on staying on Earth anyway. Mr. Musk has repeatedly declared his intention to bring humans to Mars and be part of the colonization effort there. His outlook isn't too cheery at the prospect. While he considers it a, quote, glorious adventure, he also says that the first inhabitants there will face danger, discomfort, lack of supplies, other hardships. Honestly, he says, a bunch of people will probably die in the beginning. Not exactly an encouraging assessment from the architect of the New World Society, right? Now, in contrast this evening, we're going to see God bring his special creation into a very special garden. And rather than have to eke out their survival in a wasteland, we'll find that God has provided everything that human beings need at a very lavish level. Not only for man's subsistence, but he has also provided for human relationships, for human purpose, for enjoyment in life. God heaps on the gifts to his first uh, man and woman in the garden. Now, God is our maker. He is our sovereign king. He is the decider. He gets to decide in your life, or at least he should. He's a kind God and gives us a free will and allows us to resist him. But he is maker and decider and king. He must be obeyed if we want to live and not die. That will be made clear this evening. But make no mistake about it along the way. He is a gracious and a generous provider, a giver of extravagant and beautiful gifts that keep giving more and more to us as we receive them. That fantastic generosity, which is so characteristic of God's nature, is on full display in our passage tonight starting in the second half of verse four. It says, at that time, uh, excuse me, at the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. Genesis 1, 1 through chapter two, verse four a can serve as a prologue to the book and opening Uh, that gets us into this next section. And now here we are zooming in to see more of the specific detail of what was presented more generally in the last chapter. Some say, well, wait a minute. I thought the earth had been filled with vegetation on day three of the creation week. What's going on here? Well, it was. It was filled. We looked at that before. Now the focus of the text is going to shift to God's dealings with man And we'll see that the Lord is going to build a special base of operations in a special garden that he plants in the land of Eden. And so here, what we're reading in verse five about sprouting and plants of the field and and shrubs, we have Eden in view, the garden, not the world at large. So no contradiction there. There's another important addition here. Previously, if we were Hebrew students, we would have noticed that God had simply been referred to by the word Elohim in the first chapter. 
Now he is called Yahweh Elohim in this chapter, the Lord God. And we'll see a focus on naming and knowing and calling and God's personal interaction with humanity. And already here we're seeing that God is a relational God. The Bible reveals that that Almighty God wants to have a personal heart-to-heart relationship with you, with human beings. He knows you by name. His desire is that you know him intimately as well. Um, Whatever your hobby was, say as a child, maybe you liked to doodle or draw, maybe you liked to build sandcastles, maybe you liked to craft things with Legos, whatever it is. Pretty good chance that you didn't wanna have a personal relationship with any one of those crafts, right? Now, maybe you had an imaginary friend or there's a great uh, picture book that we love, uh, Sophie Squash, I believe it's called. And this little girl, Sophie, befriends the squash that her mom brings home and intends to cook, but she can't cook it because she becomes friends with the squash. But that doesn't really happen in regular life, right? The things that we make and craft and construct, they're just things, right? But that's not the way that God creates or makes. He's not distant. He's not far away. Uh, back in the 16, 17, 1800s, where there were lots of people who were deists, the idea was, well, of course there's a God out there. It would be foolish to say there's no God. Look at the world around us. What symphony ever wrote itself? What book ever wrote itself? What picture ever painted itself? So thinking people and every average person would say, of course there's a God. But they would say, he's this faraway God. We're deists. He's, he exists, but he doesn't want to have anything to do with us. He doesn't involve himself with us. He set this world rolling and then is now just letting it roll, and we're sort of on our own here. And so God is not like that. He is a relational, personal God. He knows you by name. He wants you to know him by name, and he wants to reveal who he is to you by his word. Verse 6 says, But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. It seems that the world at that time was one big greenhouse all over the planet. Anywhere you went, if you stuck a shovel in the ground and turned it over a few times, water would start to bubble up. And that reminds us of the life-giving word of God on a devotional level. You can take your Bible and page through anywhere of the 66 books or scroll through or pick at random anywhere. And if you do a little digging, you're gonna find life-giving water for your soul. It's there. There's no deserts in God's word. You'll find all that you need for abundant life and for godliness and for uh, uh, the blessed life that Psalm 1 talks about so that you might use what you find there to cultivate your heart and bear spiritual fruit. In Isaiah chapter 58, we read that as the Lord leads us and directs us, he makes our lives like a well-watered garden. He provides all that we need to be strong and satisfied and never run dry. Verse seven, then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living being. Man was a special project in God's creation. We saw that last time. The term used here for what God is doing is one that describes the delicate artistic work of a potter working with clay. And that's obviously an image and an analogy that the Bible uses in multiple parts of both the Old and the New Testament. Here, God is pictured not only as creating this special creation, but coming down himself to handcraft a human being, 
getting close enough to breathe his own life into the very nostrils of Adam. This is no withdrawn, far-off God. This is a God with us, near at hand, from the very beginning. Always remember, God loved us first. He loves us more than we love him. He knew us from, you know, before the foundations of the earth and, and had great, wonderful, gracious, love-filled intentions for us. And so this is not a far-off God, uh, but a near one. Scholars point out that the term used for breath in the Bible applies to God and to humans, or at least this term that we're reading here. When the Bible uses this particular term, it refers to God or to humans and not to animals. We are not just another animal. We are made up of the same sort of matter and chemical materials, right? Because God created a universe with certain elemental building blocks carbon and chemicals and all these different things. But you are not an animal in the sense that the birds flying around outside are an animal or your cat is an animal or alligators are animals. You're not an animal. You're a human being made in the image of God, very different. We, we have intellect and morality and capability of critical thought, abstract thought, spiritual thought. Don't let anyone or any worldview tell you otherwise. You're not an animal. You're not from the animals. You are specially crafted by the God of heaven and earth for a special purpose and with special care. Verse eight says, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The word Eden means paradise or pleasantness or garden of delight. It was going to be man's home, his temple, his workplace. Of course, he'd be able to venture out if he wanted to, but this was his base of operations. It would be here that he would begin to do what God had asked him to do, to cultivate and administrate the planet. Meanwhile, we see that God at, at the same time stocked it completely full of fruit trees. He caused them to grow up out of the ground immediately, right? By the time Adam and Eve are tempted, there's already fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so God said, hey, you're gonna have to cultivate the land and you're gonna have to produce fruit and you're gonna have to do X, Y, and Z in your administration of the planet in the dominion I'm giving you. But along with that, God said, and I'm gonna just provide a bunch of fruit from the get-go for you so that it's, it's ready for plucking. Adam wouldn't have to fast until he could grow the grain himself and learn to make bread. All that he needed on a practical level was supplied over and above what he could possibly ingest, probably in a lifetime, was there ready for him to enjoy. Now, at the same time, we see that the garden wasn't just all practical. It wasn't just a utilitarian place. It was a place of pleasure and aesthetic beauty. The fruit trees weren't just for eating. God wanted Adam to enjoy looking at them as well. Listen, God loves beautiful things. He just does. Look at the description of the new Jerusalem. You know, we can say, well, you know, the world, we can kind of take for granted the majesty of the Sierra Nevada or the, you know, you know, something incredible like a sunrise or a sunset. But okay, let's look at the first universe God created, how beautiful it was. Let's look at the coming new heavens and new earth and how beautiful it is and adorned and aesthetically pleasing. God cares about these things. The idea that true Christianity means we should live in a burlap tunic out in a hut somewhere with no pleasure and no enjoyment and no delight, that is not what God wants. 
And yet that's kind of a nagging suspicion we have lurking in the back of our heads, right? That if I was really spiritual, I would really dislike life a lot more, right? I'd be eating grasshoppers, wearing camel skin, kind of like John the Baptist. Or I'd be like one of these weird Franciscan monks or something from the Middle Ages. And I'm kind of afflicting myself. And if I feel happy or good or you know, sustained in a, in a pleasurable way, I've probably done something wrong because after all, I'm a disgusting maggoty worm and God's mad at me because of how awful I am and I need to show him how sad I am that I am who I am. That's not Christianity. And yet that is a stripe that comes across sort of Christian culture in every age. It's still out there today. You can pick up a best-selling Christian book off of the bookshelf or in the Kindle app and it's effectively gonna tell you something like that that real Christianity is to live this ascetic lifestyle and to you know, never enjoy uh, anything in life. That is not what God wants. Now, obviously, obviously, clearly, plainly, God doesn't want us to worship material things or obsess over food and clothing. Like Jesus said outright, hey, don't obsess over what you're gonna eat or what you're gonna wear tomorrow. At the same time, he gave us these things for our enjoyment. Being a a disgusting matted hair monk up in the mountain somewhere does not make you more spiritual. It just doesn't. Now, listen, God called John the Baptist to a particular kind of life. And I'm not saying that God won't call a Christian to a period of abject poverty in their life. That happens sometimes. But this idea that, well, if I wanted to be a better Christian, today, the first thing I should do is make life a lot less enjoyable. That's just not a biblical idea. In fact, that sort of mentality doesn't make you more spiritual. In many ways, it makes you an ingrate of the things that God has provided. Enjoying and creating beauty in this world is important, and it is a godly activity. Beautiful music, beautiful stories, pure and beautiful works of art. These are expressions of the image of God. This is part of what separates us from all of the other creatures of the world, that God has given us that creative ability where we can go out and mimic, in a sense, what God has done by creating things that are pure and beautiful and wonderful to behold, not just things that are useful and practical. What's a way of applying that if you're not a creative person? I can't draw a straight line if my life depended on it. I just can't. So what do you do if you're not a creative person? Well, for one, here's one. I'm gonna aim this at the husbands in the room, okay? Guys, let your wives decorate your house. Just, just let them, okay? I know we can get cranky sometimes. And hey, I know also that money can get tight sometimes, right? And I also know that all of us have the tendency to fall into the, the Pinterest quicksand, right? That trap of comparison and discontent. That's not what I'm talking about. There's nothing wrong with a homey, beautiful abode or a beautiful church building. In fact, that can reflect the work of God. There were two trees in the middle of the garden. It was a reminder that all of life is to be centered on a relationship with the creator who made us a relationship in which we enjoy his abundant provision and submit to his perfect direction and allow him to define our reality. That was the center of the garden. These two very distinct trees that had very distinct names and, and ideas attached to them. 
And so as Adam was gonna be moving around the garden, he would kind of have to pass by these trees all of the time. It'd be a constant reminder of God has made me, God has established life for me, God has defined reality for me, God has a will and, and an opinion about my life and what I should be doing, and I must obey him. And my whole life is surrounded around honoring God, following God, allowing God to direct me in whatever ways he wants. Now, we are never gonna eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's fine, we already know about good and evil, thanks to Adam and Eve. But you and I will eat of the tree of life. That is, if you've been born again. If you're born again, if you're a Christian, you're gonna eat from the tree of life one day. And I think that's pretty neat. In Revelation chapter 22, talking about heaven, we're told that in the new Jerusalem, these trees, the tree of life, a bunch of them, are lining the river of life, which flows out from the throne of God down Main Street in heaven. And we're told that they will bear 12 different kinds of fruit, producing one each month. I, that is just downright fun, right? That's Willy Wonka stuff, right? Just, it's just fun and awesome that God is like, hey, we're bringing this tree back, and this tree is going to do this cool thing where I guess we're gonna track time in some sense in eternity. There's months in eternity. I don't know how that works. But every month, these trees are gonna produce a new fruit and we're gonna be able to eat it. That's really fun. Verse 10, a river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there's gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bdellium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the river Euphrates. I'm gonna throw something out there for you Minecrafters. And the, the, the term here for onyx is also in some translations uh, uh, translated as lapis lazuli. So if you're a Minecrafter, you go out and you go down into the mine and you're looking for gold, right? You're looking for lapis lazuli, you're gonna get those in heaven because those are building blocks in heaven as well. But lapis lazuli, we don't exactly know what it is or what it was, uh, but it's awesome and it was there in this place and we're gonna get to see it again sometime before. So tell your parents, mom and dad, I need to play more Minecraft because it's preparing me for heaven when I get to be around lapis lazuli. All right. We don't know where Eden was. We just don't. The truth is, Earth's geography was undoubtedly very different before the flood. Listen, we don't even know if there was more than one continent before the flood. There's some indication that there wasn't. And so we just don't know exactly where the location of this garden was. Now remember though, Moses is speaking to a real audience somewhere in the wilderness of Sinai. And even though we can't be sure that the rivers he's, he's reading about here still existed, it's clear that the general direction of this region was somewhat known to the children of Israel at the time. And he said, hey, listen, it would have been east of us over near where the Assyrians are and near these other regions. So there's lots of speculation. We just don't know where to put the pin in the map. But here's what's more important than the where. It's that, is that this is a record of places that were actual geographical locations. Look at the details. Now, Peter said in 2 Peter 3 that the world as it was known before the time of Noah perished with the flood. Everything drastically changed. 
And we see here that verses 11 through 14 are speaking in the present tense. Did you notice that? It's, it's suddenly speaking in the present tense, not the past tense. And it gives us an indication that this section of verses 11 through 14 are actually a report that Adam wrote down and that this account had been delivered through God's people to Moses, who was compiling this information up to this point. But the important thing is that this is clearly not meant to be read as a myth or an allegory. It is a report. It is a record. It talks about certain places, directions, deposits of minerals, the quality of the minerals there. If this was a myth, you wouldn't talk about the quality of the certain specific precious metal that you could find in this one specific area that has no bearing on the rest of the story, right? This is not a myth. It is a record, a historical report of where Eden had been. Now, speaking of which, this clues us into the idea that Adam and Eve understood something about the mining and refining of gold, something about how to access and use gemstones. We don't, we don't know all that they knew or all that God told them or all that kind of came baked in as the moment that they were created, but these were not cavemen. It's not that they were like Tarzan and they had to be taught, you know, what fingers are and then what rocks are and all these things. And they're just kind of ooh, ooh, ah, ah-ing around. These are uh, incredibly intelligent, astute people with incredible knowledge. We always look back and think, man, those, those dummies back before they had microscopes, they didn't know anything. Yeah, they could calculate the distance to the moon like back in the time of Egypt. I've been told like 50 times what the distance to the moon is and I have no idea what it is, right? And these guys are Archimedes and these other guys and the pharaohs and the astrologers of Babylon, they're sitting there just kind of looking and they say, hang on, I'm gonna invent geometry to figure this out. Here you go. And now we like come forward, hey, they were actually right. I don't even know how they knew that. And so these weren't stupid people, very, very smart, astute people, very intelligent. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. It's exciting to see here how God brought man into this special place he had prepared. It reminds us of those moments on shows like Fixer Upper when they bring the family home finally and reveal the splendor of the build. And then what do they say? Man, welcome home. This is all yours. And everybody's crying and they got all of this cool stuff to explore. In ancient Israel, there would be a time of betrothal between a man and a woman, and then the man would go for quite some time and prepare a home for them as husband and wife. And the wife didn't know when he was gonna return, and she would just hang out. And a lot of the parables deal with this, of staying awake and staying ready and watching. And then suddenly one day or one night, the bridegroom would return, he would show up again, and he would lead the bridal processional and show his wife the home he had prepared, and they would live there happily ever after is the idea. Idea. And so we see this personal romantic element in God's actions toward man. We see him acting this way towards this creation and how excited he is. He says, let me show you not just the world that I've created, but let me show you this, this awesome spot, your base of operations, your home, your temple, your workplace. It's going to be this special garden. I grew all of these trees and I arranged them and I have got spots for you where you're going to start doing stuff and we're going to bring animals in. And, and he's all excited about it. Of course, we know that the same thing is gonna happen for us, but in an even more glorious way, on an even greater level, right? The bridegroom is gone right now. He's been away. What is he doing? He's busy preparing a place for us. 
And one day he will return with a shout suddenly. And what's he gonna do? He's gonna bring us to home to be with him in paradise forever with our Lord in joy and worship and service. The terms used here for work and watch are the same used later on in the books of Moses for serving God and worshiping him. And so we see that all of life and all of human activity was meant to be this, this cooperative action of service and worship to the Lord. Yes, he would be cultivating grain, but by doing that, he was gonna be honoring God and worshiping God and receiving from God and learning from God and participating with God in the work that he wanted to do all over the earth. Now for us, though man has been driven from the garden, we're still to work and watch for the Lord. And at the same time, God is watching over us and of course, working on our behalf day and night without fail. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now we know the story, but let's look at this command for a moment. It opens with liberty. Here's my command. Eat freely, whatever you want, as much as you want. That's a pretty good opening. Those who picture God as an angry, withholding, rule-making, bean-counting accountant, they don't know the God of the Bible. He begins by commanding Adam to enjoy freedom and abundance and the many delights of what God had provided. But then there is a limitation given. Of the multiplied thousands of trees that he was able to select from, there was just one that he must not eat from. Why? Well, it's because God is not making robots. He's not just making a Lego creation. He's not just making a computer program. He made a human, very special creation, one with a free will and a capacity to love. And God loved this creation and he wanted to receive love back. But forced love is not love. All of us understand that. And so God had to give a real, actual choice to human beings as to whether they would reciprocate love back to him or not. So that man would choose whether he would trust God or not, whether he would believe God or not, whether he would obey God or not. Perhaps Adam asked at the moment, well, wait, what's evil? Adam doesn't know what evil is. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now we know what evil is thanks to Adam and Eve's failure, but I don't think they knew what evil was. Now they had good all around them, right? Because God had pronounced creation very good. Everything around them was good. And so if Adam were to say, okay, well, well what is good? God would have been able to answer Everything you see around you is good. You're good. The trees are good. All of these creatures are good. All that we've made, the stars and the heavens, our relationship, all of this is good. And if you ask what's evil, God would say, you don't know, need to know what evil is. And they didn't. We're gonna see at the end of the chapter, they knew no shame. They didn't know what evil was. They didn't need to know what evil is. And so God said, yeah, you don't need to know what evil is. You just need to know that it is the most dangerous thing imaginable. You just need to stay as far away from it as possible. Listen, a fish doesn't need to know what air is, only that being out in the air is gonna kill it, right? If fish went to school, they, didn't, they don't need to have a bunch of lessons on air and what happens when you're out of the air other than that you die when you're out of the air. And so listen, the same is somewhat true when it comes to Adam and Eve and, and the knowledge of evil. They didn't need to know what it was. The boundary God was giving them was a good thing. 
It was a necessary thing. They must not eat, he said. You must not eat. Not because I'm uptight, not because I, have, I am on a power trip, not because I want to draw an imaginary or arbitrary line to, to kind of push your buttons. He said, you must not eat because if you eat it, dying you will die, is what Hebrew scholars tell me he said. Hey, let me, let me emphasize this to you. Dying, you're gonna die. You're gonna die hard. And when we get there, we'll see you're gonna die three ways. You're gonna start dying physically. You're gonna uh, potentially die eternally. You're going to die immediately spiritually. Dying, you will die. You must not eat. Now listen, the same choice is still presented to human beings today. There's not a real physical tree of the knowledge of good and evil anymore, but we are still presented with the option. Will we trust God and obey his commands, which show us how to live a life full of blessing and goodness, or will we go some other way? Moses would later put this very choice before the Israelites themselves, and, he sa- and this is what he said. I am setting before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life. Love the Lord and obey him, for he is your life. And so every one of us is presented with this same choice today. Will we obey God? Will we believe God? Will we honor God? Will we reciprocate selfless love to God and allow him to have his way? Or will we choose death? Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper corresponding to him. It's not that God overlooked or forgot to make a companion for Adam. Rather, in the creation of woman, God wanted to show just how perfect and ideal she would be for him. There was no other better way. He wants to drive this point home to Adam. At the same time, we see that God was providing for Adam that which would allow him to fulfill his purpose. This is important. It shows us the heart of God here. Because God had told man, be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. Can Adam do that right now? He can't. It's impossible for him to fulfill that command that God had given him. And in that state, God did not say, figure it out, man, figure it out. Try harder to do what I asked you to do. It was impossible. Instead, God gave this command and God himself provided all that was needed so that man could do what he was being asked to do. That's the heart of God. God doesn't command us to do anything that we're unable to do without his help. All of his commands on one level are impossible for us, right? Because we're sinners and because we're imperfect and because we're not all powerful or all knowing. So God gives you commands. We read one of them in the prayer time tonight. Love your enemies. That's impossible, right? That's the most unnatural thing in the human condition after Genesis 3. And God says, no, you have to love your enemies. And now I will provide what you need so that you can do that. Do you want that? Now it becomes a choice of whether we will accept what God has provided or what God has offered to people or whether we'll say, no, I don't want that because I don't want to obey you. So God here, we see him providing what is necessary so that man can fulfill the commandment he'd been given. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky, and he brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So Adam was the first biologist. It's astonishing to read whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. That means that God's 
went by that name as well. This is how much agency God was giving human beings. He gave true dominion, true ownership and authority to man. At the same time, the Lord was showing man just how unique he was and how hopeless he was, but for God's intervention. Adam could not find, create, fashion a companion for himself. He could not fulfill his purpose without the Lord accomplishing it for him. And he would have to wait on God's timing and God's provision in order to receive it, right? He didn't get to say, let's go, God. I want my companion. I feel kind of lonesome, so let's get a move on. He's on God's time schedule. He has to wait for God. He has to allow God to do his work as God reveals what is true, reveals to Adam, oh yeah, there is only one hope for me and that is the intervention of God in my life. Verse 21, so the Lord caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. The word used for rib here is never translated as rib in any other passage of the Old Testament. Rather, it speaks of the side. Uh, I think we need to get out of our minds the idea that God neatly took a, one little rib, you know, this little tiny bottom rib that barely exists. That's not what, what's happening here. Seems like a big old chunk of Adam's side was taken out. Now, why put Adam to sleep? There's no pain in the garden. Well, this action accomplishes a lot of things. For one, it pictures the death of Christ thousands of years later, whose wounded side led to the creation of his bride. It demonstrated to Adam that God still exerts power and his will over the physical universe. He wasn't just a clockmaker God who said, well, I wound everything up and now just natural physical laws are happening and I just let it go as a perpetual motion machine. He says, no, I, I'm gonna involve myself in the physical process. You're going to sleep, we're doing surgery. I, I, I have power over the physical still. It demonstrated that in some things, there is nothing that man contributes to the work of God. Yes, man was put on, the, on earth in the garden to do work with the Lord and for the Lord and to be busy. And yet there were certain things that God was going to accomplish that man would contribute nothing to. No cultivation, no you know, activity, just a willingness, right? Salvation is one of those works. We contribute nothing to the work of salvation. It is all the work of God. We receive it as a gift. You cannot cultivate work harvest your own salvation. God has to do that for you by freeing your will and giving you the choice of whether you are going to receive that free gift, all of God, or whether you're going to say, no, I would rather not have it. The aftermath would also give Adam a lot to think about. He would go through life with his side unprotected. His bones didn't grow back. If you touched Adam over here, it gave. Like Jesus goes through eternity now with the marks of his crucifixion. And, and that's an amazing thing, I think, to think about. Because in some sense, once Eve was brought to Adam, it would really be best for him to keep his wife close by, <laughs> close to his heart, right, as a shield and help. Anybody seen Luca yet? This isn't going to spoil too much, but there's a part where the one kid has a weird uncle and, he's, and his heart stops. And he says, hey, you gotta punch his heart to get it going again. And he's kind of this weird see-through sea creature. It's really gross and hilarious. But think about Adam. I like to think that God took it from this heart side over here and that you could kind of look at the, 
right? He doesn't have his rib cage over there. Gotta keep Eve close, right under his arm, right? Close together uh, in, in that unity and in that companionship. God fashioned this woman and then brought her as yet another gift to man, a lavish one. It was God's greatest gift to Adam so far. And we can see how excited and involved and personal God was about all of this. Verse 23, and the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. So not only was Adam the first biologist, he's also the first poet. He agrees with God that man was not made to be solitary. Lots of animals out there are solitary animals, right? They, all, they cruise around by themselves all the time. They only interact with one of their kind every now and then. That's not humans and certainly not the people of God. God made us to be in community and in relationship and to live with one another and to interact regularly in significant ways, truly living life side by side with one another. In the church, in the family, in a, in a marriage relationship, if that's what God leads you to, we are meant to be a communal people. The primary way we carry that out is in a marriage relationship. Now, this is the first relationship God established for human beings, not the priest-person relationship, not the lawyer-client relationship, not the father-son relationship or the mother-daughter relationship, not the friend relationship, but the marriage relationship. Now, listen, Adam had to have a wife, otherwise there is no human race. This text is meant to be a general explanation, not a universal mandate to every single person now that we've made it past the garden. As we read the rest of the scripture, it becomes very clear that God directs some of his people to remain single. If that is the case, you are not more or less human. You are not more or less Christian. But generally speaking, this is the book of beginnings. Generally speaking, people get married and that's a good thing. And the standard for what that means has been established from the beginning of human history. Marriage, as God intended, which leads to a meaningful and fulfilled and successful life is one biological man and one biological woman living together in a unified monogamous relationship as long as they both shall live. That's the standard and the ideal. Sin has ruined that in many, many cases. We see it all the time. But this is the design that we're seeing from the beginning. Two people unified together in a special way that trumps every other human relationship. But what does this mean for us? Listen, time only permits me to talk for a second to those who aren't married here tonight. If you're not married, here's what that means. If you're married, stay married. Let the Lord work in your marriage. Okay, if you're not married, here's what this means. First, seek God on whether he wants you to get married or not. Okay, seek God on whether God wants you to get married or not. Adam didn't go out and find Eve. God, God brought her to him. If God's will is for you to get married, then he has a specific spouse in mind for you, handcrafted for you. It's very important that you allow him to bring that spouse to you. If he does, that person will be a believer of the opposite gender who is ready to commit their lives to you and vice versa. And together you are meant to bond in affection and understanding and spiritual pursuits on every human level. For those of us who are married here tonight, if your spouse has abandoned you, hurt you, uh, or committed adultery, there's other teaching on that in the Bible. 
There are biblical grounds for the dissolution of a marriage where Jesus Christ himself, you know, the one who, who said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. The people who nailed them on the cross. That guy said, listen, if the following things have happened in your marriage, your marriage can be over and that's okay. Now, if those things aren't going on in your marriage and maybe you're in a rough time in your marriage, allow the Lord to work in your heart because God can knit you together with your spouse and use your marriage relationship in a way that no other relationship in your life can be used. Okay, is that making, all making sense? But especially for those of you who are not married, it is so important that you only get married if God wants you to, and you only marry the person that God designed you to marry. We see that these two people were, were specifically made for each other. We have no reason to think that God does not have a specific spouse in mind for you. It would be silly. Of course he has a specific spouse in mind for you. It can be hard to find them. We just need to follow the example of scripture, allow the Lord to bring them to us, allow the Lord to lead us and show us so that we can have the kind of marriage relationship that God wants his people to have. Verse 25, both the man and his wife are naked and yet felt no shame. Unsullied by sin, they were completely open and uninhibited. They had no need to feel vulnerable because there was no threat. Look at all God had provided for this couple, the place they were in, the provisions for their life, the purpose he gave them, the partnership found in one another. They had it all. Now, for some application as we close. If you're like me, maybe at some point through this text, you thought, well, shoot, if these people had everything perfect and they still messed up, how can I hope to live up to what God wants for my life? It's true, sin has fouled up a lot of things. Our world is ruined by it, our hearts are stained by it, our minds are infected with it, but God is still the same. God doesn't change yesterday, today, or forever. The generous, caring, particular love he had for our first parents is the same that he has for you and me. He has provided all that we need to enjoy everlasting life, life more abundantly, life fulfilled in his glory. He sets it all before us in his word. We can still choose to go his way, or we can choose the way of ruin, which leads to death. Going God's way has become harder now that sin is in the picture, but God still gives all the power and provision that we need to receive the life that he's made for us. It won't be without difficulty, but his provision and tenderness has not been cheapened in any way. Instead, knowing how intricately he wants to be involved in our lives and how much he has provided, we should allow him to bring us into the places and relationships that he desires, and then we should seek his will in our jobs, our marriages, our interactions with the world. He should be the center of the garden of our lives. But I want to do my own thing. You can do your own thing. Adam and Eve could do their own thing, and they did. And it's going to lead to death and ruin, just like it did for them. Ruin in relationships, ruin in your experience, ruin in your, uh, in, in your walk with the Lord. God's commands are for our good and so that we can lay hold of the incredible lavish gifts he wants to give us. Along the way, he uses our homes, our words, our relationships, our efforts to bless us, to bless the world, to beautify whatever corner of the world's garden in which he's placed us. And we look forward to that day when he finally brings us to our forever home, a place with no more shame, no more pain, no more shortcomings, no more scary trees that we have to worry about, where at last all will be made right and perfect and we will commune with our God face to face.